Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell, Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine and Neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine here in New York City. Our topic today is subarachnoid hemorrhage and management of subarachnoid hemorrhage in the intensive care unit. I uh, care for patients with this often challenging and complex clinical situation, and I'm personally very glad to have an opportunity today to speak with an international thought leader on this topic, Dr. Michael Derringer, MD, FCCM. Dr. Derringer is currently a professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and anesthesiology at Washington University in St. Louis, um, and he is also section chief of neurological critical care at Barnes Jewish Hospital. And we will be discussing his article recently published in Critical Care Medicine entitled Management of Aneurysmal Subarachnoid Hemorrhage. This was a concise definitive review published in Critical Care Medicine, and the reference was Critical Care Medicine 2009, volume 37, number 2, pages 432 to 440. Thank you very much, Dr. Derringer, for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Well, I thought, um, like we usually do with these podcasts, I'd uh, allow you an opportunity to begin by talking about some of the epidemiology of subarachnoid hemorrhage and perhaps introduce the topic to our listeners. Sure. Um, Subarachnoid hemorrhage is relatively uncommon, fortunately, for us, although the interesting thing is that aneurysms appear to be quite common in the general population. Uh, autopsy studies suggest that 2 to 5% of people have aneurysms, maybe as high as 6 or 7% based on screening MRI studies. Yet, only about 30,000 hemorrhages occur each year in the United States. Risk factors for hemorrhage include smoking, heavy alcohol use, and hypertension. And aneurysmal development has also been associated with a number of inherited disorders, such as uh, polycystic kidney disease, connective tissue disorders, and there appears to be a a familial form as well. um, One of the important points, though, that that you point out is that the focus of this talk and this article was non-traumatic subarachnoid. Traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhages uh, act differently, right? There aren't some of these issues of the sequelae? Yes, I think that in in general we make a a fairly clear distinction between aneurysmal bleeds and traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhages or even uh, other subarachnoid hemorrhages from arterial venous malformations or some that are undiagnosed in terms of etiology. Um, the aneurysmal bleeds tend to have a lot more blood in the subarachnoid space and tend to be much more frequently associated with vasospasm as a secondary complication. Whether this occurs in traumatic hemorrhages is still debated. There is some evidence to suggest it, but clearly it doesn't have the same clinical impact as it does with aneurysmal bleeds. I thought I'd next uh, let you discuss... um where most of these aneurysms are are found and why that contributes to the pathophysiology of the disease? Most of these aneurysms are found at the base of the brain around the circle of Willis. 
this is where the two carotids and vertebral are all interconnected to form this complete circle in most people, although various of the anastomoses may be not present in a given individual. Um, these are major branch points of these large conducting arteries, and they seem to be associated with more turbulence and stress on the, on the vessel wall. And uh, about 80% of aneurysms develop around these sites at the takeoff of the, uh, at the internal carotid artery where the posterior communicating and anterior communicating arteries take off. I've often thought about when I'm at first seeing a patient like this, and, and it can be devastating, there's no role for screening or anything or nothing that people can do about this other than to decrease the risk factors that you mentioned, like smoking and drinking, right? There, in, a, in some cases, may actually be a role for screening, and that's in the, in the cases where you have a more than one first-degree relative with a history of an aneurysm. So what's generally recommended is if you have two first-degree relatives that have aneurysms, then screening may be appropriate and uh, consultation should be sought. The screening could either be with an MR angiogram or a conventional catheter angiogram, and there are pluses and minuses of each approach. But beyond that, no, you're right, there's, there's not a lot we can do um, other than control our blood pressure and not smoke and drink moderately. Uh, and as a follow-up question to that, and again, this is sort of a clinically relevant one, is the patient that has an angiogram that clearly has a non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage, but the angiogram, at least initially, is negative. Can you talk for a few minutes about uh, what, what should be done, and is that a different kind of, of patient? Yeah, that's an interesting group of patients, and there are uh, a couple of issues related to it. One is the concern that on a single angiogram, you may have missed the aneurysm either due to technical aspects or some vasospasm. Um, so in general, uh, everyone repeats the angiogram after a period of time. This is, varies according to different people's practice anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks. Um, outside of that, there is also a group of people who have subarachnoid hemorrhages that end up even on two angiograms not having an aneurysm. And this has been called a, a perimesencephalic hemorrhage because in this group, the blood is pretty much localized to the perimesencephalic cisterns. This uh, etiology of subarachnoid hemorrhage is thought to be venous. Uh, recurrence is exceedingly rare, and in general, the patients don't go on to develop vasospasm uh, or have any other problems. So uh, one is, uh, if the first angiogram is negative, to make sure you haven't missed one that was hiding. And then second, if they have this localized blood in the perimesencephalic cisterns, you can reassure the patient that the prognosis is much better. Um, I thought that would uh, lead nicely into an area that, that may sound basic, but I really think merits discussion, especially if there are uh, critical care fellows listening, in terms of the different clinical grading scales. And I'd just like to talk about it for a couple of minutes before I let you, uh, let you discuss it. Mm -hmm. First, there's the standard clinical grading scale, the Hunt and Hess scale, and then there are the radiologic scales. And as, as you've pointed out and, and as is taught, 
that it appears that the more blood that is there, hence the radiologic scales, that seems to correlate with the risk of vasospasm. And in terms of the clinical scale, most of the patients that I've seen clinically are at least a Hunt and Hess 3 with confusion, lethargy, uh, and, and mild symptoms, and obviously 4 being stupor and uh, 5 comatose. And again, as you emphasize in your article, that seems to correlate with outcome. And before I, I let you go, I was wondering specifically if you could comment on the relevance of some of these other scales, such as the World Federation of Neurological Surgeons scales. And then finally, I noted that you use this modified Fisher CT scale with it being one to four, uh, with two and four having evidence of, of intraventricular blood. So um, if you could sort of talk for a few minutes about the different uh, scales, that would be stupendous. Sure. Um, this is an area that, that's kind of confusing um, because there are so many different scales and they're similar yet different. There are two clinical grading scales. As you mentioned, the Hunt and Hess grading system, which was developed back in the 60s. And then there's a newer scale, the World Federation of Neurological Surgeons scale, which is a little bit more refined and, and probably is the direction of the future, but some people still stick with the Hunt and Hess. The, the big cut point in the Hunt and Hess scale is for grades one and two, patients are should be alert and awake. And if there's an impairment in consciousness, as you say, where they're confused or lethargic, then they become a grade three. And this jump between two and three seems to be a cut point in terms of prognosis, both in terms of risk of spasm and in outcome, that in general, grades one and two patients do very well, whereas three, four, and five do progressively worse. The World Federation of Neurological Surgeons scale modifies this a little bit and says you can be a grade two and be slightly confused. So if your GCS is 13 or 14 um, and you have no motor deficit, you'd be a grade two in the World Federation scale. Their big drop in level of consciousness is grade four and five, where the GCS goes down to seven or below. So I think either one of them is fairly interchangeable. The scales that measure the, the radiographic appearance and try and quantify the amount of blood, um, the first one was defined by C. Miller Fisher, I believe also back in the 60s. And the scale is a little confusing. And that's one of the reasons why things have moved to the modified Fisher scale. With the original Fisher scale, um, grades 1, 2, and 3 were progressively more blood and progressively increased risk, but actually a grade 4 was a lower risk and has created a lot of confusion. In addition, um, it's become more evident over the years that intraventricular hemorrhage is a, is a contributing risk factor to vasospasm, which has led to the development of the modified Fisher scale, which I really think better captures um, what's actually going on with the patient. And that really, you have focal or thick subarachnoid blood, and then it's with or without intraventricular hemorrhage. The grades go from one to four, and, and as the grades get higher, the risk of spasm goes up. And uh, I'm actually going to read it because this becomes very helpful in the future when people are listening. So grade one, as you point out, in your article, minimal or diffuse thin subarachnoid hemorrhage without intraventricular hemorrhage, indicating low risk for symptomatic vasospasm. Grade 2, minimal or thin subarachnoid hemorrhage with intraventricular hemorrhage. 
Grade 3, thick cisternal clot, again, though, without intraventricular hemorrhage, indicating intermediate risk for symptomatic vasospasm. And grade 4, cisternal clot with intraventricular hemorrhage, indicating the uh, highest risk for vasospasm. Yeah, that, that captures it very well, and I think it's a, it's a much easier to use uh, scale than the original Fisher scale. Um, in terms of the, the next part of the podcast, uh, we were going to deal with some of the management issues and just to, as a big picture to let you pick and choose from things like, um, and again, the intensivist won't be deciding this, but clipping versus coiling, and you must have thoughts on that, uh, anticonvulsants, corticosteroids, blood pressure control, and so I'm going to let you take it from there. Okay. Well, I, I think I want to start this conversation by saying that there are no definitive data on any one of these issues. There's a lot of uh, retrospective papers, experience, and um, sort of consensus of experts. So please take everything I say in that context and recognize that, that there are several ways to do everything and no one is absolutely right. However, uh, some of the issues that, that we're talking about, uh, for instance, the clipping versus coiling, um, this is usually determined by a joint discussion between an interventional neuroradiologist and a neurosurgeon, uh, although some of the neuroradiologists actually are neurosurgeons as well. Um, there are certain technical limitations associated with aneurysms in certain locations, making some uh, pretty much everyone agrees should be coiled and some everyone pretty much agrees should be clipped with a lot of uh, gray area in the middle. And I think the best way to handle that is, is based on the particular expertise of the individuals who are available to treat the patient and between the two of them, which they feel is in the patient's best interest. Um, as an intensivist, you're right. I, I just keep my head down and, and sort of stay out of that one. Um, Another interesting issue, which, which is uh, very much in, in, in the realm of critical care, is early management of cardiovascular status. And there are a number of, of issues here. One is the relationship between hypertension and aneurysmal rebleeding. Although, again, the data are suggestive but not definitive, um, most clinicians tend to treat hypertension in order to limit the risk of aneurysmal rebleeding, and its management involves uh, initially pain control because the pain may be an important driver of, of the hypertension, as well as use of beta blockers, and you may require fairly high doses because catecholamine levels are fairly high, or uh, nicotine infusions has been effective in controlling the blood pressure. In addition, in a, in a small number of patients, there is an associated acute cardiac injury uh, that occurs at the time of subarachnoid hemorrhage, sometimes referred to as a stunned myocardium or takisubus cardiomyopathy, um, takisubus cardiomyopathy. And um, these patients present with severe heart failure and hypotension and pulmonary edema and require very aggressive interventions to support oxygenation and, and blood pressure. Um, 
the very interesting aspect of this is that this is all very transient and heart function can return entirely back to normal in a matter of a few days. So this is the transient left ventricular apical ballooning syndrome, right? The Takotuba, Correct. right? And and they're very, very challenging initially to manage, and uh, but it, it becomes very much worthwhile because it's going to get better and, and patients generally will do well with this. And this is also, and this comes up frequently in my life, is the dealing with the blood pressure between the initial presentation but before the aneurysm is controlled, right, where you have to walk this fine line or mm-hmm. whatever? Um, this area is fairly controversial, and if you look in the journal, there was, some, there was a letter regarding this, this topic uh, in discussion about my article. So the concerns are, one, um, higher blood pressure and rebleeding. And then another concern is, as with all um, patients with chronic hypertension, that you don't want to lower the blood pressure too much um, because the patient's autoregulation may be impaired and they may require somewhat higher perfusion pressure. So typically what I'll do is look for some signs of chronic hypertension, be that LVH on an EKG or uh, changes in the, in, uh, the retinal arteries, um, multiple antihypertensives, and in those patients, I'll be less aggressive about lowering blood pressure. If there's no history of severe hypertension, then we target a, a basically a normal blood pressure until the aneurysm is protected. Well, um, and just as a couple different mm-hmm. points, one is that sort of medical legally, nimodipine needs to be started on these patients. And the point that you brought up that I've seen again frequently in my life is the you often may have to uh, decrease the dose and increase the frequency if there are blood pressure issues related to that, right? Yes. Now, that, that's in the... So up until now, I've been discussing the, the pre-treatment of the aneurysm period. Right. Once the aneurysm is treated, then we're, we're not worried about controlling hypertension nearly as much. And in fact, the, the general tendency is to let the blood pressure run higher because now we protected the aneurysm, but moving forward, we're going to be at risk for vasospasm. And that's where that nemotipine issue comes in because the nemotipine can tend to lower blood pressure and, and make that a problem. What we try first is to split the dose and give it more frequently. And on occasion, where patients are requiring pressors to keep their blood pressure high enough to treat spasm, we may stop the nemotipine. One of the questions I've had is, or just even consensus or your thoughts is, once the patient may be unfortunately developing vasospasm, mm-hmm. is it recommended or do you continue the nemotipine at that point? Does it have a role? Yeah, well, nemotipine, that's a very interesting question because nemotipine can be operating through two different mechanisms. It can be working through the calcium channels in blood vessels to promote vasodilation, although the angiographic data in the studies was inconclusive about that, or it may be working entirely differently on neuronal calcium channels and preventing neuronal injury on that basis. So if the second mechanism is the one that's active, then it would be helpful to continue it while the patient is having active vasospasm. And I do try and continue it as long as it doesn't cause serious problems with blood pressure. Uh, so, and just to reiterate that, so in theory it might prevent the extent of the vasospasm? Oh, or the impact. The impact, okay. So it might be that the vessels are in spasm, but the brain is better able to tolerate the lower perfusion. 
Um, two specific areas that I wanted you to just comment on is one is the role of anticonvulsants and the role of steroids. From what I understand, these are both um, widely used but not particularly evidence-based. Yeah, that's correct. Um, as far as anticonvulsants go, there is an association with the hemorrhage and seizures. Those seizures don't predict long-term epilepsy, and it doesn't appear that the use of anticonvulsants impacts that. Yet, during the early period, at least theoretically, there's a concern that seizures, which will raise cerebral blood flow, could cause the aneurysm to re-rupture. In addition, um, there does seem to be an increased risk of seizures perioperatively in any patient undergoing a craniotomy. So those two issues have led everyone to want to give prophylactic anticonvulsants, at least in the early period, the first few days. Practice varies widely about what you do after that. I think everyone will, will treat initially, but some, some centers will stop at three days, some at a week, some at hospital discharge, and really we don't know what the right answer is. In addition, there, there was an article recently that suggested that long-term cognitive outcome was negatively impacted by uh, anticonvulsants. This is a retrospective study and therefore um, is by no means definitive, but that also has added fuel to the fire to sort of minimize the use of the anticonvulsants. And then uh, corticosteroids. Corticosteroids is uh, a dealer's choice as far as I'm concerned. We have, in my center, we have four cerebrovascular surgeons that all treat aneurysm patients. Two give steroids and two don't. I can't tell that there's any difference. Um, the at least theoretical reasons are to reduce inflammation of the meninges and help the headache, et cetera. Um, I don't really see that they do much other than make you give more insulin. And and as you point out in your article, there was a, a recent Cochrane review that felt there was no evidence of benefit or adverse effect of, of corticosteroids. Yeah, so I've sort of taken the posture, what, whatever they want to do is, is fine, um, uh, and move on to other issues. And um, we're sort of heading towards the end. I thought I'd let you talk for a few minutes about the um, very concerning um, cerebral vasospasm and the role of Triple H therapy and all that. Yeah, that's really the the... Uh, one of the more challenging and in some ways rewarding aspects of, of taking care of these patients. What vasospasm is is, is uh, a series of different factors, including constriction of blood vessels, uh, hypovolemia, loss of autoregulation, that all conspire to reduce uh, perfusion to regions of the brain. And if, it goes, if perfusion goes low enough, they will go on and have an infarct. So you basically have a stroke happening in front of your eyes. And the approach to treatment is really in three phases. Prophylaxis with nemotipine and aggressive hydration. And then treatment of when patients develop more severe symptoms or, or other uh, TCD velocities or angiograms that are more worrisome then there either can be endovascular treatment with angioplasty of the, of the vessels around the base of the brain, which is really quite effective, uh, and, but primarily limited by the fact that you can't get to the distal vessels. 
In addition, uh, there may be infusions of intra-arterial vasodilators such as uh, nicardipine, milrinone has been used, um, so there's a number of different agents there. That's the endovascular side. On the medical side, um, what's traditionally been called triple H therapy, I, I prefer to call hemodynamic augmentation because I don't think we really yet know which of the H's is the right one, and uh, the whole idea of the therapy is to improve cardiac output and blood pressure and perfusion of the brain. The role of hypervolemia seems to be um, coming under a little bit of question now, and the general trend is to target euvolemia and hypertension and or augmenting cardiac output. And we use a variety of agents. Uh, uh, neosinephrine was commonly used, uh, norepinephrine, um, and some people prefer the, the inotropes, uh, dobutamine or milrinone. I think it's center-specific. I think the goal is to augment hemodynamics, um, keep the hemoglobin probably above 10, um, and, and improve oxygen delivery as best you can. Because that's interesting. Uh, because in many centers and, in, and the way it's taught that you're targeting uh, a certain mean arterial pressure, but your point is you may also be targeting a, a certain cardiac output, and that makes things a little bit more, um, certainly more complex, right? Well, I think I, uh, I'm kind of targeting a neurologic exam, and I'm going to tweak whatever gets me there. So um, one of the approaches that we used to take in the days when we still use swan ganses was to put one in and assess the patient's baseline hemodynamics and see which parameter you had most room to go on. Were they uh, somewhat hypovolemic, and if you filled them up, their output would improve and their pressure would go up? Are they vasodilated, because the nemotipine does some peripheral vasodilation, and would um, uh, constricting agents help improve their blood pressure better. And so I sort of take a look at look at the big picture and see where you can push them a little harder. And each patient, what you push may be a little bit different. Um, for your patients that don't have a ventric in and a ventriculostomy who may not have developed uh, hydrocephalus, um, do, do you routinely measure intracranial pressures on those patients coordinating with the neurosurgeons or not so much? No, I think that that in general, intracranial pressure in these patients um, is driven by hydrocephalus. There are a subset who may have a lot of swelling either from a hematoma or infarcts um, uh, who, who may be treated for cerebral edema, but typically we don't monitor ICP unless their ventricles are enlarging. Um, and then I guess if you want to spend a couple minutes talking about transcranial Dopplers, I think that's an important area. Yeah, transcranial Dopplers have been around for quite a while, and uh, their their utility has sort of waxed and waned depending on the uh, the literature. The absolute velocities of the transcranial Dopplers don't seem to be as helpful as the trend. So what people look for as a sign of a patient who's developing vasospasm would be a rapid rising velocities over a day or so. Um, some centers will routinely do them on a daily basis and guide their management based on the velocities. Other centers uh, don't use them, 
Um, and and that's been my perspective. I I no longer use them because I have had a very difficult time coming up with a treatment plan based on those numbers that really changed management and and did any good. Yeah, I've I've seen. I mean, just anecdotally, you'll see where the neurosurgeons will see a patient that will look good, have abnormal TCDs, and they'll ignore them. And then conversely, a patient that doesn't look good that has normal TCDs, and they'll treat them. Right? Is that? Yeah, I, I think because because. Basal spasm really is a complicated thing. It's not just the spasm as we like to think about it. And there's autoregulatory issues, there's blood volume issues, and so the the bottom line is really how the patient's doing, and the TCD is a number that gives you a piece of information and is by no means the whole picture. I think the one place where they seem to be pretty valuable is they have a very good negative predictive value. So if you have normal TCDs, the likelihood that you're going to find angiographic vasospasm is quite low. But beyond that, I, I think they're uh, um, not terribly helpful. Was it uh, challenging now looking more at the, just the hospital issues? If you, did you, when you said, you know, I think we should stop using these, was there pushback from either the neurosurgeons or the neurologists or anything like oh, that? I, I actually, it was the opposite. I, I had uh, – been working at Hopkins where we got them regularly, and I came to Wash U where there was no one doing them at the time, and I just never pushed it to create a, a TCD service. And we've talked about it over the years, but there's never been enough interest because we all sort of are ambivalent about them. Um, I thought I'd conclude before I let you make some. Um, final statements about, you know, I think where the neurointensivist or or the intensivist who's caring for these patients gets involved in are a lot of these complications, pneumonia, venous thromboembolic disease. And a couple points that I'd just like to get your opinion on is one, if and when on sub-Q heparin and screening lower extremity Dopplers. Maybe if you could talk about that. Sure. Um, I joke on rounds and I'm not smart enough to know when to give heparin because everyone has a different opinion. And so I can describe to you our practice and its variation. Um, we have some surgeons who are comfortable, and we'll start sub-Q heparin 24 hours after the hemorrhage. So uh, they'll come in, they'll get the aneurysm repaired, and the next day we'll start sub-Q heparin. Others are a bit more cautious and like to wait up to several days. Um, one of the other factors that gets thrown into the equation is whether there's a ventriculostomy present or not, um, although I, I, I just am really not sure that I can say there's a higher risk from sub-Q heparin with, with ventriculostomies bleeding. Um, in terms of Dopplers, um, DVTs are, are a big problem for us. We may go through a long, rocky ICU course and get everything moving along well and the patient's improving and then, and then send them to the floor and next thing you know they have a huge PE. So we do screening Dopplers every week on these people. Um, if clots are found almost universally, they get uh, filters placed rather than uh, intravenous anticoagulants or, or Coumadin. Um, and uh, so we're very aggressive about that. We were aggressive with the sub-Q heparin. We screened for, for DVTs, and, and we push early ambulation in patients. Yeah, I find this to be a really very challenging area because it's, you know, it, it, you know it's there. You don't, 
you, you want to not miss it, but treating it in these patients with the limitations of, uh, of filters, et cetera, it can be a very difficult area. Yeah, and, and I, I worry a lot about the filters. We've really switched over to re- removable filters on everyone. Um, the, the problem here, the problem with anticoagulants and the brain and bleeding is we really do not have any good data. And while at other sites, bleeding can be managed often um, in the brain, yeah, you can manage it, but by then it's too late. Well, I know that you're one of the co-authors on some recent uh, international guidelines on this topic, and I thought I'd let you conclude either by making some final broad statements or any potential future therapies that you may be excited about for subarachnoid hemorrhage in the ICU. Uh, Maybe I'll make one broad statement about guidelines. Uh, simply to point out that at this point for this disease, the data is is really not definitive in many, many areas, and the guidelines reflect a political consensus of opinions, and they should be interpreted as such, and I wouldn't take anything as as dogma. Um, Beyond that, there are some interesting things on the horizon. There's a lot of interest in statins, there seems to be uh, some protection for patients who are on statins at the time of their hemorrhage. Um, people are looking at instituting statin therapy, and we're studying the effect of statins on autoregulation in these patients. Um, there is also a, uh, a phase three trial going on now of an endothelin antagonist, clozacantin, which um, is at least in the, in the phase two trials reducing the incidence of angiographic or TCD vasospasm, um, and we're looking now to see whether that translates to an improvement in outcome. And uh, a couple of other interesting things there. I've, there have been a number of interesting reports about nicardipine implants put in at the time of surgery that have a sustained release of nicardipine, and they they have shown some clinical benefit in in trials in Japan. So uh, that may be something else new coming along. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Dr. Derringer, for spending some time with us today. We've been speaking with Dr. Michael Derringer, MD, FCCM. He's a professor of neurology, neurosurgery, and anesthesiology at Washington University in St. Louis, and he's section chief of neurological critical care at Barnes Jewish Hospital. We have had a terrific opportunity to try and Uh, provide some structured approach to the complex clinical situation of a patient with aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhage in the intensive care unit. Thank you again, Dr. Derringer. Oh, you're quite welcome. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information and some of our archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Society has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. These publications cover numerous topics, including rapid response systems, fundamental disaster management, pediatric critical care, coding and billing for critical care, critical care ethics, mechanical ventilation, and the critical care refresher. For more information on these and other publications, visit the online store at www.sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.